Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios East and West, transmitting across the internet, this is episode 292 of Registry Matters. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Good. Good evening, Andy. Good evening, and how are you? I am doing awesome. Our legislature is kicking ass. And yours is like three days long or something? 30 days. 30 days. It started when? January 16th. So you, you're like in kind of like the closing days then almost. Yeah, we got 13 days to go. Do you do crossover? No, we don't have a crossover. It can cross over at any point. Uh, is that, do you, like, I'm, Georgia has a crossover day, and that's, like, a big deal, and if you can keep it from crossing over, then you've kind of won. Uh, theoretically, but not necessarily, because <laughs> you can, you can take something that didn't cross over, and you can apply it to an, uh, you can do an amendment to a bill that has crossed over, and using the language in the bill that didn't make it through crossover, if you find somebody who's willing to have that attached to his amendment, so it, it's not necessarily the end of legislation that didn't cross over. At dinner, I was trying to explain to my kid about the uh, the topic for the evening of, of what we're going to talk about, of frightening at high. And uh, God, just trying to trying to describe saying, so there's this thing at the lower court that, and then it gets higher. And I was like, oh my God, this is so, it's so wonky and complicated, Larry, to just try and explain to someone's like, well, hey, what are you going to talk about tonight? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And that, along with trying to explain how committees work to then go to this goofy procedural thing that is a crossover, and some states have them, some states don't, you don't, then there's what, Nebraska with the unicameral body? Is that is right? correct. The only oh my one God, the, it's just ridiculous. Only one in the nation. They have 49 senators, and they only have one chamber. Chance, have you, are, are you experienced with going down and testifying and whatnot with the legislature? Yes, I am. Oh, well, very good. I've, I've, well, I've well, done perfect. it. Oh, have you? God, that's, that's, then you're like a hero. You're one of the rock stars. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yes, yes, I have been involved in doing that type of thing. Well, make sure that you go over and press like and subscribe over on YouTube and leave five-star reviews on whatever podcast app most people use. Apple podcast, I guess it's called. So please go leave a review over there. That would be, if you do nothing else, that would be the free way to support the show. And uh, make sure that you do the thumbs up stuff on YouTube, everything, all that stuff. Subscribe with your podcast app. All that stuff would help out if you would contribute that way. So, Larry, what are we doing this episode? Well, we have a multitude of things for this episode. We're going to be taking some questions, a comment from the audience, and we have a few articles we're not going to get to. I can see that now. We, we plan to discuss frightening and high recidivism and the question about how that fact was determined. and the relevance of that fact in terms of the Smith versus Doe presidential decision. You could kind of say it not really a fact. Well, it is a fact. <laughs> it's just not really a true fact. But it's a that fact. That is correct. It's, it's, the, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the law of the case. Yes, I get that. But that, you know, Larry, there, we have learned recently that the more times you say the untrue things, the closer they are to the truth. If you keep repeating it, it becomes true. So, 
well and before we get started just remind the audience we have now we have the 182 year old larry but we also have a person less than half that age named chance overstein who's an attorney yeah. who, who practices <laughs> in in the state of california so uh 182 chance you're 90 something pretty close pretty wow close. jesus so, man so we we have the opinion now of a lawyer on registry matters podcast fantastic um well let's dive in with this first comment from a person this one's fun larry i was like oh that's kind of an interesting person that we have in our ranks as a listener it says um i will keep this brief but i will say you failed at it i am a former deputy u.s marshal who is now on the registry naturally i listen to your podcast and stay up to date on the latest trends and emerging attitudes in the field i was listening to rm289 and i felt inclined to contact you while i am now a pfr and must deal with the collateral consequences of my choices i have to step in and provide some feedback on a comment that was made on the show about license plate readers i guess we were talking about the woman that was getting arrested the young woman who was getting arrested and how would they like spot her car that's probably that's what we were talking about Yes, you had you had opined that it was likely from a license plate reader, and I didn't know, have any information on that, but it could have been for any number of things, pretextual stops, but go ahead. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, the episode provided a lot of sound advice in terms of invoking your Fifth Amendment right as well as being brief, and I agree with all of this. What I disagree with is the statement saying they're not just running every license plate that goes down the road. They pulled her over because of one of their license plate readers triggered them to pull her over. Let me make this clear. You need probable cause, or in some situation, a Terry stop to pull a vehicle over. We do not know what those uniformed officers were doing when they pulled over this female. They could have seen her break the center line, miss a turn signal, roll through a stop, all reasons for a lawful traffic stop in all 50 states. What I'm saying is we can't assume we know the basis for the stop. If there was no probable cause for this stop and detention, this driver could have had a thousand pounds of drug in the car and would be, uh, it would all be dismissed. What I am saying is we don't know for certain why these officers pulled this woman over. And for us to, in the affirmative, say it was a license plate hit for an abandoned vehicle is not fair. There are dozens of other reasons that the officers could have legitimately pulled this woman over. Anyway, thanks for your time, and I love your show. Well, I, I appreciate the comment. And I think in the story itself, it was related to the license plate because the vehicle had been towed or something like that. The deputy U.S. marshal, former deputy U.S. marshal, is correct. They will pull you over, and they'll invent the reason later. And if they can't invent a reason legitimately, they will make up stuff like, well, you drifted over the center line. Everybody does. If you follow someone long enough, persistently enough, they will drift. I mean, just yeah. – <laughs> They'll do something that gives you reason to pull them over. <laughs> but what, what Chance and I were trying to suggest strongly was that she should have kept them on point and just saying no thank you and i would have continued to give the same advice if you encounter a cop i want you to deal with the reason for the stop i'm not your friend i'm not going to have small talk with you i don't intend to tell you my life business i'm not even going to tell you what i'm doing except for maybe some vagueness about what i'm doing i'm on my way home where did you come from i'm on my way home officer <laughs> you know it's like uh, i'm not going to go go down that path because it only goes downhill when you go down the path um, with a chance, any other comments to go along? No, no, I also appreciate that comment. And, you know, apparently he knows what he's talking about. And, you know, but again, you know, it isn't how you guide it along. And it isn't 
brevity. It is how you handle yourself after the stop that really counts the most. So very good. All righty. Well, so now we've got two questions com combined into one coming up, right? Yes, that is correct. So Dave wrote in a question and then Evie or Evie also asked a similar question. So we are just going to kind of take them all just from what Dave wrote. It says, hi, Andy and Larry. Didn't the Wisconsin, sorry, I got to say it right, Wisconsin Supreme Court rule on this in RM 272. Now some lawmakers want it to mean multiple convictions stemming from the same incident. Having two or more convictions causes one to be labeled a SVP and requires lifetime GPS at a cost of $240 a month and maybe more now. For what it's worth, until 2017, when the AG reinterpreted this section of the SVP law, separate occasions meant, well, separate occasions. When I was uh, state contact for w Wisconsin, this reinterpretation generated over 240 letters and emails for me. Does this bill stand a chance? I probably should have the Clinton laugh queued up for this one. So, well, I think he's talking about Senate Bill 874 in Wisconsin, and it absolutely has a very good chance of passing because there won't be any strong opposition that will surface. You've got the probation and parole department there that wants it interpreted the way that it's interpreted. They are the ones who solicited the attorney general's opinion letter. Now, I'm going to talk about attorney general opinion letters, and basically they're worth about a bucket of warm spit. That's why they're called an opinion letter. But they're given a higher amount of regard from the from the solicitor of the uh, of the opinion letter, and here in our state it has to be a lawmaker, or I believe an agency that requests review because they have the duty to to execute and perfect the law that's been passed. So they ask who who would you I mean you wouldn't ask the sanitation engineer. So who do you ask? You ask the attorney general. Hey, what does this mean? We're a little unclear. Well, the previous attorney general rendered that opinion that separate occasions meant separate occasions within the same case. But the Wisconsin Supreme Court recently held that separate occasions meant that you offend separately in separate cause of actions. And uh, that's not what uh, the way that they were applying it. So people who were subject to that monitoring, unless they had two separate case numbers, theoretically have been removed from that obligation. Theoretically. I'm not in Wisconsin, but I don't know uh, for sure, but that theoretically the, uh, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections have take, taken the action to remove those people. This is the lawmakers wanting to clarify what they meant, which would ultimately neuter the Supreme Court ruling because they don't, the Supreme Court doesn't get to decide what the law should be. They get to interpret what the law is be. And they interpreted that language to mean on separate occasions and separate case numbers. And the lawmakers in this proposal, I did a quick glance at it, and they're making it clear that they intend it to be uh, the, uh, multiple convictions even within the same case. So uh, it is very likely to pass, in my opinion. Governor Evers will sign it if it makes it to his desk because of the political fallout would be horrendous if he didn't. So if you guys can't figure out a way to kill it in the legislature, you're going to have a whole new problem probably by later this year on the effective date of this law. Do you think there's any chance that anybody in Wisconsin will get forth and kill it? I don't know enough about how uh, the process works there, other than I know general politics quite well. I don't know who the opponents would be that would step forward. I, I just can't imagine who would be 
the victim's advocates are not going to be against it, and they're usually a big part of the big uh, part of the process. The law enforcement apparatus is not going to be opposed to it. Uh, I can't see the Department of Corrections saying, "Well, you know, we just don't have time." To, to, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't think of who any natural opponents be. Possibly a defense lawyers union uh, association of sorts. You know, the Wisconsin defense lawyers, possibly, but there's not going to be any really strong opposition that's going to surface. And when the committee uh, chairs call these bills up and ask for public comment, and all the public comment is favorable, I just don't see how this is going to be voted down. I see. And so, and can you explain in a little bit different detail of having two or more convictions causes one to be labeled a SVP? Um, so, and so it means separate occasions. What are they? What are they doing? Like, what are they functionally doing? Well, suppose you had had three counts within the same case. What the Wisconsin Supreme Court decided was that that did not mean separate occasions. Now, literally, it could mean separate occasions. You could have three counts in the same case, and one could have happened in uh, 2017, another one could have happened in 2019, another could have happened in 2022. I gotcha. And th- those could have all been charged in the same case, and it could have been separate occasions. But uh, the uh, the way that the Supreme Court in, uh, interpreted it was that you had to have been had been subject to separate prosecutions and been convicted independent. Now that to me that might encourage prosecutors to be uh, would have encouraged prosecutors to be more creative in terms of how they file charges, and and chance can weigh in on that because if they know they can put you on lifetime GPS monitoring by having uh, uh, by prosecuting you on two separate occasions. If that's the magic formula, that's what they would likely do. If that's their goal. Chance? Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably true. I mean, you know, the there, you know, it it is, you know, this the, the comment that Larry made about you know the opposition is really a good comment, um, because it really that's you know when when you're talking about trying to stop something like this, sometimes the cost of trying to enact something like this is you know, makes, you know, in the, in the process as far is, 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 is far greater than actually implementing, you know, what, you know, what people are saying in terms of pushing this and implementing it. Uh, and you, you can only do that when you have opposition and you've thought it through and you're thinking about, you know, how legitimately to oppose it. It's all, it always comes down to an opposition smart thinking about what the costs are of doing whatever you're proposing to do. Um, and that has to be done in these meetings, and it has to be done in a way that makes sense to everyone um, so that, you know, it can be shot down before it gets too far. Usually, you know, in California, we have public safety uh, meetings, and, you know, those types of things are discussed, you know, what, what it's actually going to achieve and at what cost and whether or not it's worth it. Um, so there has to be some kind of pushback. Otherwise, really backloading it. You're, 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 you're hoping to then shoot it down via constitutional challenge. And I don't know enough about the bill to say that it violates, you know, a due process, equal protection or whatever. I'd have to really look at it closely. But, you know, that's an uphill battle. That's a tough battle. And, you know, when you think about it, separate occasions and, you know, what an SVP is, uh, you know, it, it, this, this is a very, very tough terrain. That's what I think. Certainly that. Anything so, else before we go on, Larry? Well, 
I feel bad for these people because, in my opinion, unless something dramatic is taking place in Wisconsin behind the scenes that I don't know about, this bill, I can't see what the barriers would be towards it being approved. Uh, and it's the people's prerogative to designate SVPs how they see fit. And, of course, the presumption is that it's constitutional. There may be some constitutional arguments that could be made downstream after it becomes law, but there's nothing, there's no order that any court can issue to tell the legislature not to legislate. They can legislate any damn thing they want to legislate whenever they want to do it. Or they can refuse to legislate. And we've learned that from following cases here when people say that the court gave the legislature six months to legislate. You can give them 30 years to legislate. They don't have to, they don't have to do a damn thing. So uh, that's the thing about the separation of powers. They can't tell them to, to legislate. They can only tell them what happens if they don't. Remember the Michigan registry when they told them that they had to legislate within a certain amount of time? I said, I they, they, can't, this. They, they can't do that. And they didn't legislate. But then when they finally told them, well, the, the registry is going to go dark on a date certain. If you don't, then magically they legislated. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, and but but it's important though. If there are issues of constitutionality and issues of cost, that someone will push back and bring it up, so at least it, it can it can be th thought through, uh, you know, before any final decision is made. Because sometimes those are the things that cause a bill to go away. Um, but you know, once a bill is in place, you know that's that's a whole that you know that's a whole different story, and you know. That is a tough terrain, you know, to challenge these laws and, you know, and, and such, but don't know enough about it to really analyze it constitutionally to say there's anything there to do that. So. Understand. So we'll move along then. then we're going to go over to Arkansas. This was a question asked by Jacob. It says, I was convicted in 2010 in the U.S. District Court of the Western District of Arkansas. On PFR-related charges, I am a level 3 offender, and though I have a while to go before I can get off the registry, I do have questions. Sorry for the long statute. Under Arkansas ACA, uh, Arkansas Criminal, what would that be, Larry? ACA. Arkansas Code Annotated. Oh, my God. Okay. I never would have gotten that one. All right. And look, I got 12-12-919, then a B, then a 1, then a big B, then a Roman numeral tool than an A. I don't know how to read that, Larry. That's too many things together. I don't even know how to read that, and I get trained. To, <laughs> I've been trained to do this, but uh, I, you, you got too many. Uh, when you have the capital B and then you've got the lowercase B, I don't remember what that means. Uh, that it's you've like got, paragraph you, this, subparagraph that, sub subparagraph. Oh, wow. sub, wow. Screw that. All right. Anyway, I gave it to you, and it'll be in the show notes later. And it's dates no less than 30 days before the date of the hearing on the application under subdivision, lowercase b, cap, uh, one, and then capital A, of this section, a copy of the application under subdivision B1A of this section shall be served on the prosecutor of the county in which the adjudication of guilt triggered registration was obtained if the PFR was convicted in the state. Could they word things more complicatedly, Larry? Seems perfectly clear to me. Okie dokie. All right, then to continue. The issue is, I was convicted in the same federal district as where I was sentenced, but a different county. I am from Franklin County, but was sentenced federally in Sebastian County. So based on the reading of the statute, do I have to notify the Sebastian County prosecutor, the federal prosecutor, 
the Franklin County prosecutor or technically neither county prosecutor since it's a federal case. And thanks for your time and, of course, FYP. So I called the guy and I enjoyed this question so much because some people can invent things to be worried about and crazy stuff. But this is actually not totally crazy uh, because he's reading from the statute. And I have researched that statute, not today, but I've researched it in the past. And it does say what he says it says. But I don't think it means what he thinks it means. And <laughs> But it does say that. Uh, so Arkansas, like several states that have removal processes, if you were convicted in a circuit court in Arkansas, you have to go back and file your petition for removal in that circuit court and you serve it on the county prosecutor of that jurisdiction, similar to what you would have experienced in Georgia. No matter what, which of the 159 counties you chose to live in, your Georgia conviction would have gone back for the removal petition to your county of conviction. But had you been convicted in a non-Georgia setting, either federally or in another state, you would file it and serve it on the, you'd file it in the county you're living in. And I think that's what this means in Arkansas. But since I'm thinking it, doesn't mean it's so. So he would be well advised to consult with an Arkansas practitioner. But uh, if he, he's got to serve it on someone. There has to be an adverse party to this because it's an adversarial process. You don't just file a petition and the judge says, oh, well, nobody got served. I'll just grant it. Someone has to be served. But if it were me and I, if I held a license in Arkansas, I would tell the gentleman, barring any case law on point, to the contrary, I would tell the gentleman, well, you have a non-Arkansas conviction, so therefore we're going to file it in your county of residence and we're going to serve it on the prosecutor in the county of residence. And that will be the responding party. And that prosecutor, having never been connected to this case, may not have any anxiety whatsoever because that's going to be a state of Arkansas prosecutor, and he was prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Very few people go backwards, and in, in, well, if, if they're assistant United States attorney, they don't, don't generally give up that coveted assignment and go work for a state prosecutor's office. It just flows the other way around. You work for a state prosecutor's office, and you get a job with U.S. attorney. So that, that prosecutor's not going to know anything about him. All they're going to know is what any information the sheriff where he registers has been has provided or will provide to them after the, after the, uh, the petition is filed. So that's what I think I would do. But this is a unique question because it literally does say you file in the county you're convicted. He happens to be one of the rare ones who was convicted in a federal district in the state where he's registering and where he's, where he's living. Oftentimes, they were convicted in one federal uh, uh, court, and the, the Bureau, Bureau of Prisons, the BOP, put them in an institution all across the country, and they don't return back to where they were convicted. But this is one of those unique circumstances, so he needs to figure out if there's any case law on point. And for a small fee of $10,000, I'll research that for him and give him an answer. <laughs> wow. and, and Chance, you, you're not going to undercut me on your fee to do that research, are you? Oh, no. No, no. I wouldn't undercut you a bit. A bit. But so, I do think that you know, that's a very good idea. Um, not only look at it and consider it, but to get 
some advice, you know, from someone who does these types of things in that state um, and guidance on how to go so that you save a little bit of time and effort. So um, I think when we were on a phone call with him, I, I did research Franklin County, and it's a very small county, I think, population of 17,000. And it's not going to be a bastion. Most 17,000 population counties that have been stagnant at that level for 40, 50 years, they're usually not a bastion of liberal and progressive thinking. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to deny the petition. But that's research you would want to add to the list. You want to find out how many people have been removed in Franklin County. If you can get, get some data on that. And a practitioner might be able to get that information easily and say, well, actually, my colleagues and I, we've been bemoaning this. We filed in the last uh, five years, we filed two dozen petitions and not one of them has been granted. If that be the case, then I would suggest you do some research about places you might want to live in Arkansas because my opinion is that you can file in the county you're residing in since it's a non-Arkansas conviction. So barring a legal barrier, I would pick up myself and get out of Franklin County when the day comes several years in the future, and I would file it there. The problem he has is that this system that Arkansas has is very expensive to administer. And there have been bills through the years in the legislature to dismantle the risk-based system because they spend a whole bunch of money providing due process and doing these psychosexual evals over in Pine Bluff, and they want to just get rid of it and go to the categorical approach. So what would be hilarious would be if he's in the 14th year of the 15-year registration period and they abolish it and he can no longer file. Chance, anything that you want to add to all that? No, but I know I, not not really because I think that that Larry covered it pretty comprehensively. Other than that, you know, the just to emphasize that legal culture is really a consideration here. And you know, if if you're in a place where these things just aren't happening, and you can you know shift to a place where they are, common sense tells you go where you need to go. So. All right. So I guess uh, you know to, on to the main event. Um, and I guess you guys uh, really have this thing all teed up that we're going to be talking about frightening and high. Who wants to start? I'll start. I'll start. I'll start. Tell, tell me, Andy, what, what, what was that conversation you had with your kid? Oh, well, um, so <laughs> he said, well, what are you going to talk about tonight? And I said, oh, gosh. Well, so I, what I know about the frightening and high, and I hope that I have this right, is that from a Psychology Today article on a very small subset of the worst of the worst of the worst kind of offenders, that this evidence was presented in court at the lowest of levels, and then due to summary judgment, it just kind of gets passed on and on and up. And then our people say that the Supreme Court says, but they never found it, they just carried, it was inherited all the way down. And then it gets cited in all of the uh, subsequent papers and references that PFRs have a frightening and high chance of recidivating. And that's not really how that needs to be presented because it was on this very small set of people from kind of a junk article about a very small set of PFRs. That's what I understand it to be and kind of explain that to him. But boy, it's, is it complicated. It's hard. it's hard. It's hard because, you know, when you're explaining this frightening and high, it's like the snowball that never was, but it rolled down the hill and got very, very big. But let's take a look at some of the background on it before we get started. So, you know, Larry then can pick this thing apart from his point of view. 
And the first thing to know about this is that, you know, driven by a pervasive fear of sexual predators and facing almost no discernible opposition, as we have discussed before, politicians have become ever more inventive in dreaming up ways to oppress those forced to register through the state and federal through state and federal legislation. And when these laws have been challenged in court, they've been justified based on the Supreme Court doctrine that allows such laws, thanks to the quote unquote as high as 80% recidivism rate ascribed to untreated sex offenders by Justice Kennedy in a case called McCune versus Lyle. And that's a 2002 case. You'll find it at 536 U.S. 24, page 34, which then morphed into frightening and high risk of recidivism, risk of recidivism posed by sex offenders in Smith v. Doe, which, is, uh, which happened the year after. That's a 2003 case. And you'll find that at 538 U.S. 84. The problem is that 80%, that 80% recidivism rate is an entirely embedded number, which comes from a psychology, a psychology Today article published in 1986. That article was written by a treatment provider, not a scientist, but a treatment provider who claimed to be able to essentially cure sex offenders through innovative, adversive therapies, including electric shocks and pumping ammonia into offenders' noses. Justice Kennedy found that a, found that, that number, that particular number, which is 80%, in a brief signed by Solicitor General Ted Olson, the brief cited a Department of Justice manual, which in turn offered only one source for the 80% assertion, and that was the Psychology Today article published in 1986. The article offered no real way, scientific or otherwise, to fact-check the 80% assertion that was made in it. Because that 80% figure suited the government lawyer's aim of cracking down on sex offenders, Solicitor General Olson cited it, of course, and Justice Anthony Kennedy conveniently adopted the figure without question in 2002 and carried it over to where it morphed in 2003. As a result of its application in Smith, laws based on the Supreme Court's baseless, frightening, and high doctrine has done long-lasting damage to well over a million sex registrants in our country. Now the question is, did it really have to happen that way? What do you think, Larry? Well, before I go into it, if I remember right, uh, Solicitor Olson died in 9-11. I know he died an untimely death, and, and we're all sorry for that. Uh, but it, I don't remember the circumstances, but he, he's no longer with us, and he died uh, uh, an untimely, suffered an untimely demise. Uh, you don't wish anything bad on your opponents. But as he would have been the representative of uh, arguing the, the case uh, uh, on behalf of the United States, at least his office was, whether he was personally there. Uh, but no, it didn't, it didn't have to be that way. I don't think it had to be that way. Uh, but I'm not even sure where to begin because uh, my issue has always been that the Supreme Court did not create the notion of frightening high recidivism in either Smith v. Doe or McCune v. Lyle. That fact was handed to them by the parties in terms of how they handled the litigation below, meaning at the trial court and the court of appeals. And I'm quite certain that all of us are familiar with the rules pertaining to summary judgment. A party that moves for summary judgment tells the court that there are no material facts in dispute and that no trial is needed for further factual development. In addition to that, the court must resolve any doubts 
in favor of the non-moving party, meaning the party that says, judge, we don't need to waste your time. We can rule this case. You can decide this case on the briefs. Everything that was in the brief of the non-moving party, if it's any ambiguity, it's resolved that ambiguity in favor of the non-moving party. So I have a little doubt that in Smith versus Doe, although I haven't read the briefs thoroughly, and in McCune versus Lyle, I haven't read those briefs thoroughly, that they raised the issue of frightening and high recidivism. So in both of those cases, it didn't have to be that way if the parties had said, well, uh, judge, uh, we'd like to go forward with a summary judgment, but the state has argued frightening high recidivism, and we dispute that. That is not a fact. The recidivism is actually quite low, and we're ready to put on testimony over a three- or four-day trial to show that that is, in fact, untrue. And they didn't do that because they assumed that in both cases, in the uh, 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 in their mind, they had it won because in Smith v. Doe it was an ex post facto argument, and they figured that that would carry the day, and they had not uh, apparently read Kennedy versus Mendoza-Martinez in 1963 about an ex post facto challenge. It's not really ex post facto if it's civil and regulatory. It is not intended, or if it doesn't actually, in effect, uh, uh, impose punishment. And in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, McCune versus Lyle, which I'm going to get into reading a little bit from that later, but the same thing. There was factual development that needed to have been done, but they were certain that they could win without factual development. And they were right. They did win in both of those cases below, but they didn't win uh, at the final decider, which was the Supreme Court. They did win below. It's, well, that's that's correct. But in, in, and I'll say the Supreme Court didn't create this false notion. They perpetuated it. It was offered up in a brief which cited the department or cited a Department of Justice uh, manual, which in turn offered only one source for the 80 percent assertion. The Psychology Today article published in 86 should have been challenged and should have been developed. And that lesson has been learned. I think you can look at Michigan or the Michigan challenges and and you can see throughout the country that, you know, amicus briefs are now being attached to these things. And, and, and you know, the response is that we're just not going to have another situation like that. And I think that that is the effective way of litigating in the future. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app. Hit the subscribe button and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there, too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. So, well, I hate reading, but I'm going to try to do the best I can to read a little bit from the syllabus in, uh, in McCune versus Lyle. And it says respondent, uh, because he would have been the respondent since he had won below. When you look at a case, the party that's listed first is the party who filed the cert petition. So that is essentially the party who did not like the 
the uh, Court of Appeals decision. So respondent was convicted of rape and related crimes. A few years before he was his scheduled release, Kansas prison officials ordered respondent to participate in a sexual abuse treatment program. As part of the program, participating inmates are required to complete and sign an admission of responsibility form in which they accept responsibility for the crimes to which they have been sentenced and complete a sexual history form detailing all prior sexual activities regardless of whether the activities constitute uncharged criminal offenses. The information obtained from that uh, SATP participants is not privileged and it might be used against them in future criminal proceedings. There's no evidence, however, that incriminating information has ever been disclosed, according to the court. Officials informed the respondent that if he refused to participate, the prison, his prison privileges would be reduced, resulting in automatic curtailment of visitation rights, earnings, work opportunities, ability to send money to family and canteen expenditures in excess of person, uh, and access to personal television and other privileges. He had also be transferred to a more dangerous maximum security unit. Now, that's a pretty significant threat to hold over a person. If you don't do this, we're going to do this. I mean, would you agree with that, Chance? That's a pretty significant hammer to hold over someone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so he was in a position where he was basically uh, in a no-win situation. Nonetheless, he refused. Now, I, I tell you, that is, takes some courage. When they tell you they're going to realize to, uh, all these things to you and he refused, uh, uh, on the ground that the, that the required disclosures would violate his Fifth Amendment privilege. And he filed a, uh, for an injunctive relief. He filed a petition under uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983. The district court granted his summary judgment. Remember, summary judgment. And the Tenth Circuit affirmed the summary judgment that compels self-incrimination. It is, in fact, it actually does violate the Constitution. But ultimately, Kansas won because they went to the Supreme Court. And the the record that they would have had when this case, when McCune versus got to the, McCune versus Lyle got to the Supreme Court would have been a very sparse record because it was all done on the pleadings below. Maybe he should have, rather than being so arrogant, assuming that since he, self-incrimination is a legitimate constitutional right, maybe they should have done a little bit more research to figure out what the exceptions are and whether this would have fit within some of those exceptions, similar to what the exception was in uh, uh, the uh, Smith versus Doe, uh, the Kennedy Martinez uh, analysis of what constitutes punishment. But here we are because of summary judgment, in my opinion, there weren't enough facts established below. Agreed. Agreed. So, and that, well, then, and that, that is frightening and high. <laughs> <laughs> Very well, clever. I still see many cases going up on motions for summary judgment that shouldn't go because there are things that are in dispute. There are facts that have not been adequately established. The case out of Colorado where Judge Mage, uh, uh, he's now deceased, but that very important case challenging the registry was sorely lacking in evidence, although there was a trial. There wasn't any evidence because the lawyer didn't have any money. But I, there was an attorney based in North Carolina that filed a motion for summary judgment on a frontal assault on the registry. And the judge denied it because the judge said, I see facts here that haven't been properly developed. So the judge saved the lawyer. I mean, ultimately, the case was still lost. But the, the judge said, I, I deny your motion because I see that there are facts here that haven't been clearly developed. Why? 
are people so hell-bent on avoiding trial? You've been practicing for 42 years. Why do they want to do everything by summary judgment? I think there's, there's a great, you know, one, one, I think they are limited by resources. And two, uh, they cut corners. Or three, they're just lazy. Or four, they don't know any better. And it, 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 it makes for a lot of bad law. That's just, that's just the case. Larry, going back a bazillion years, like the origin of our relationship was judicial economy. Wouldn't that summary judgment fall under that kind of uh, philosophy of it just makes it more expedient to, to move the cases through court that way? Oh, absolutely. It, it's efficient. But remember, you have a duty to do the best for your client, not the most efficient for you. Now, if your client can't pay the bill, <laughs> that's a different matter because if you're doing it on the hopes that you're going to win uh, and get a payoff under 1983 later, well, the, the more you have to do in advance of this case, you're going to have more to lose if it goes against you. So I'm guessing since I've never practiced law at that level, I don't know what uh, you would, how you would analyze it. Well, if I have to prepare for, for a week-long trial, uh, Chance, it's my opinion that every day you're going to be in trial requires a day of, tr of prep to be ready for that day of trial. So if you're looking at a one-week one trial, you've got to at least do a week worth of prep, at well, least. Let, let's put it this way. If I'm preparing for trial, for every hour I spend litigating, I spend three hours preparing. If you could, if you think about it in, in those terms, so uh, so they may be looking at the loss is going to be horrendous because under these 1983 claims they're not going to get paid unless they're a prevailing party. But I want to win, and I tell I tell the client, yeah, you know, if we if we need financial resources, we can't do this case. We just can't do this case because this case is going to require a lot of money, and our little firm just doesn't have the money to carry this case. Although we believe in you, we believe in your, your issues, but we need a budget of $50,000 for experts. Do you have that? Because we don't have it to, to front you. We just don't. Let me uh, uh, jump in and ask, what is, I, I actually do kind of know this one, but what is a 1983 claim? You keep uh, throwing that out there. What is that? Uh, actually going to talk about chance, probably you, because you have the uh, law degree and all that stuff. No, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass this on to Larry. Uh, I'm not familiar with 1983 <laughs> claims because I don't really. Do yeah, I don't. It's, those are federal claims, right, Larry? Yes, that's a section of the United States Code that provides for for civil rights actions, and there's a provision in in, in 1983 claims for the prevailing mm -hmm. party to recover mm -hmm. the attorney's fees. And I don't know if California has a similar provision in their civil litigation, but uh, but yeah, it's a it's a way to recover. And people like to use 1983 claims because the federal judiciary is theoretically more insulated from the political whims. You don't have too many Judge Perskys in the federal system. You know, they're, they're, they're on the bench under Article Three of the Constitution for life. And like them or not like them, there's not anything you can do about it. There's just some gross malfeasance. And I mean, in the terms of my lifetime, it's been maybe two or three federal judges I can remember that have been impeached and removed. It's, for, it's exceedingly rare. Correct. All right. Are we done with this section? Well, I think we could probably do a little bit more development on the issue of frightening a high recidivism. It is in every preamble legislative enactment about frightening a high recidivism. The legislative, uh, uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures, they pump out this model stuff 
uh, among others, but the National Conference of State Legislatures pump out this stuff in terms of model bills. And this is in ours in New Mexico. It's probably in every registration scheme around the country about the legislature fines. Now, I tried to strike that this year on a bill that we're working on. And, and much to my surprise, the state Department of Public Safety, they rejected it. I was going to strike everything in that preamble in my version of the bill. I struck the entire preamble and it said the purpose of the Sex Offender Registration Act is to comply with the federal Adam Walsh safety, child safety or whatever it's, uh, the title of that is. That's what I had in my preamble. And Chance, aren't you surprised? They they wanted to leave that, that legislative finding in there. So the bill, that, as it's currently working through the legislature, has that preamble uh, contained. I'm going to try to strike it as an amendment because that, there's no frightening and high recidivism. But it's in every legislative enactment. The legislature has found frightening and high recidivism. Well, but they're just citing to the, the Supreme the, Court piece, right? Yeah, that that's the snowball that never was because, you know, when it happened, you know, in Smith, it was it was small and it began to roll down the hill and now it's huge and you're right uh, but you know I look at that as a rebuttable presumption I mean you know frightening and high the Supreme Court's crucial mistake about sex crime stats done by Ira Elman completely rebuts that and not only does he rebut it and he and he is uh, I think preeminent in that I mean he's 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 he is a respected and um, and credible researcher and if you look at his article, and it has been used, you know, in litigation across this country, in amicus briefs and such. You'll find that it 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 re- totally rebuts that 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 presumption, and 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 should be and should be um, used in every single way, in, in you know, in, in in litigation, in state and federal litigation, and also in legislation. I think that it should be recognized because um, it really takes down, you know, that foundational that foundational brick that justifies all these other things that oppress all these other laws, rules, regulations, and so forth. Well, my goal is to remove it from our preamble because there's no basis for that to be there. And I learned through, I've learned through the years of being in the legislature that the victim's advocates come in and use that. And they use it as a hammer to hold over the lawmakers. They say, well, look, you've already found that these people pose a, a frightening high and they're a danger to the community. And and I, I saw a senator that I'll choose not to name said, I don't care about that. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, gee, you said that publicly and it's going to be used against you. And it hasn't been yet. But but uh, that it should not be in there because it's just not factually correct. But it's also not factually correct to blame the Supreme Court for it in its entirety. What would have been some options that the Supreme Court could have done uh, that would have minimized or diminished that uh, based on the posture of the litigation, being that this came to them on summary judgment, being that uh, 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 both Kansas and Alaska did not get the chance to test their defense? What could the Supreme Court other options have been uh, rather than doing what they did? Could they have kicked it back down for further development? What, What would have been a better outcome? from the Supreme Court. Well, they could have. I mean, they, they certainly could have. Or, 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 or Justice Kennedy, starting before Smith versus Doe, uh, you know, instead of taking it for, you know, what he, you know, what his use was, okay, could have at least background checked it. He could have, he could have fact checked it. He could, he could have had his clerks look at it and really develop it before he stated it. Okay. Cause it's, it, it really is, you know, 
intellectually um, just uh, horrendous. I mean, it's, it is a fallacy and, you know, it has no foundation and it should never have occurred in any opinion. So I, I think that part of this is the fact that he just didn't fact check that assertion, just used it in order to justify some things um, that, again, have rolled downhill and become this like monster. Um, but yeah, further development and two, at least, at least fact checking it before using an opinion. Well, it would be my opinion that the Supreme Court's justices very seldom do their own research. So I would think that his law clerk is who found this for him. But the law clerk probably found it because the law clerk was asked to find something because that meant, in my, in my mind, Kennedy was leaning towards ruling against a uh, sex offender and in favor of the state of Alaska, or in the case of Kansas, against the the uh, offender and in, in favor of the state of Alaska, uh, state of Kansas. Uh, so if the law clerk was told, you find me something, this is what I need because this is where I'm leaning, that I think is probably a more likely scenario of how it, it came down than, than they, uh, do you think that they actually do their own research? I suspect that most of the research is done by the clerks of, of the Supreme Court justices. I, I, I suspect that you're probably right. I think maybe some unique justices do their own research. I think that they also rely on their clerks mostly. And I think that they set out the parameters and guidelines of that research. And, you know, those who really want to know what they're talking about, you know, want to get a full view, both sides of the equation, before they make a bold statement that may impact people for a very, very, very long time. I think it was reckless. But I, I do agree with you that I think that he was looking for a way to get to where he wanted to go. And I do think that that's probably the likely scenario. Well, you know, you and I probably are one of the few people still alive that remember the series, uh, TV series, The Paper Chase from the 70s. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but, but the mythical Professor Kingsfield would have, would have read that and he'd have said, what is your source for this? Before I put, absolutely before I put this in majority opinion, what is your source? I mean, he would have been a tyrant on that because that's just the way he was portrayed in the show. But that's what a good justice would do when something like that comes before them. They would have said, "I see that as hey, I need to see where this comes from and how credible it is, and if it's been peer reviewed." Because if we're going to adopt frightening high recidivism, although. There, this was decided on summary judgment. I'm not going to use it as a basis in its entirety unless there's something validating this. That's something I think that Justice Kennedy could have done. Well, he, he could have done it. I mean, you know, there's an old saying we had in law school, you get Cardozo. And, this, you know, there was a Supreme Court justice, Justice Cardozo, who, you know, instead of doing that, you know, drew a line from A to B where he started and where he wanted to go and then built everything in to get to that conclusion. And that's that seems to be what Kennedy did. So, well, we've got time. You know, for your it's, it's a shame because you know what? A year later, he took everybody with him. <laughs> everybody. So, just wrong. Well, so, I think we then have time chance that you could do the follow up for that uh, additional question that that was asked for the, okay. the California corner. Okay, the California corner. Is that okay with you, Larry? You want to do Let's you know, do it. Let's do it. Got a few more minutes here. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll do that as a follow-up to what we spoke about maybe an episode or two ago. 
Um, and, you know, we were talking about uh, petitioning for removal in California. And uh, this, this comes up. This is, this is a follow-up and this is an update. And I think that a lot of folks ask this question and get caught in it sometimes in the wrong way. But the question is, can you apply for removal in California if you are residing in another state? And the answer is yes. And the answer is no, because it comes down to how you do it. It's no, you cannot petition if you reside out of state. And let me give you an example. California, a man named Clifford James Smythe, but Smith, however you want to pronounce that, was categorized as a tier two sex offender. And he sought to be removed from the California sex registry. However, at the time of his petition, he was living and registered as a sex offender in Oregon, not California. The Superior Court of Glen County, of all places, denied his petition, stating that he was not currently registered as a sex offender in California. On appeal, Smith argued that the denial of his petition violated equal protection and was contrary to the legislative intent of California's sex offender registration laws. The Court of Appeal of the State of California, 3rd Appellate District, affirmed the lower court's decision. The court found that the California law, which was restructured to establish three tiers of registration for sex offenders, only allowed people registered in California to petition for termination from the California Sex Offender Registry. The court disagreed with Smith's argument that excluding out-of-state registrants from obtaining relief was contrary to the legislative intent and was just absurd. The court reasoned that as someone not, regist that, that as someone not registered in California, the legislative concerns did not apply to Smith. Okay, so it's an absolute no if you're not living and registered in California. It's a yes, either by residing in California or establishing a second residence in California. So it's a, if you're an out-of-state registrant and you want to petition off the registry in California, establish a residence in California. If you want to take your California conviction and you want to petition for it out-of-state, and establish a second residence in California. And you can always get advice from a, an attorney who does these things in California on exactly how to do that. And I'm going to note two things which I think are really important. Uh, one, you must include the out-of-state residence on the California registration form if registering in both places. Very important you understand that because on that form it says places where you register. A lot of people confuse that by thinking that's only places in California. No. If you're registered in another state, let's say you have a California conviction, you're in Oregon, you want to get off the registry in California, you want to keep both residences, and, you're, and you established a second residence in California, all you need to do is put in that box your other address where you register at. That way you can move to and fro and still keep your established second residence in California for the purpose of being removed from the California registry. And two, during the process of removal, uh, you've got to serve uh, agencies and, you know, what I mean by agencies are the registration agency and the prosecution agency of that particular jurisdiction, and also your outside agencies, meaning the ones outside the state, as part of the petition process. Why? Because California law requires it in order for the removal process to move on because they have to establish eligibility. And two, they're asking for input. So what does this really mean? What this means is that even though 
your outside folks in the other state are probably not going to respond and are disinterested and don't understand California law. If they have any input at all, at least you give them a chance by serving them with the petition to respond. If they don't, within 60 days, you're good to go. And you're only relying on the agency you're registering with in California. But it all has to be done according to plan. And those are things you have to consider if you're going through the process. And that is the answer to that particular question. I love it. Yes and no. So Yes and no. <laughs> Andy, Typical Andy attorney. To, it depends. Andy, Andy used to tell me that's as clear as mud. Right. So, uh, well, on a funny note, uh, I have a, a person don't remember his name, met him about 10 years ago up in Seattle, and he was the best pro se litigant that I've ever seen. He was the best brief writer of a person that didn't have a legal background. He could outright me in terms of how well he composes briefs, and I don't know where he got the skills to write, but he he comes to me and says, you know, I want to, basically he wanted to state shop and figure out all the states he didn't have to register, and he was calling the states to to get them to opine on his Washington conviction, if he'd have to register there. And he told me, he said, well, I'm going to file in Hawaii for declaratory judgment. I said, you're wasting your time. I said, I'm going to answer that. If I'm the respondent, I'm going to answer that saying that you're not registered here. You're not required to register here. You you don't have to register. And we don't be bothered with you until there's a, 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 this is not a ripe question. And he figured out how to bypass my concern. He put down in his petition for declaratory judgment, he filed a petition for declaratory judgment. He asked the court to rule whether he would have to register, and he said that he's, his business took him to Hawaii on multiple times, frequently enough, that this was not just a theoretical controversy, but a real controversy. And he got a court in Hawaii to rule on whether or not he had to register, and he had never set foot in Hawaii before. <laughs> That's interesting. That is interesting. Very so creative. I, I Very learned not to, be, not to be so arrogant telling people, I said, you're not going to even get the, I said, I'm going to come in and, and, and just can you on your first, on my responses, you know, your, 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 your issues with Washington, not with us. And he was able to get the, get a Supreme Court ruling. I know a, a trial court, I don't, I don't think he had to appeal it because he, he won, but he was able to get a trial court to rule on something where there was no legitimate dispute between parties. And I thought, well, I just need to tone down my arrogance a notch or two because I didn't think he could pull it off. And he did. And he just wrote such magnificent briefs. Where do you go to plagiarize to write that well? Because I've been doing it for 20 years and I can't write as well as he did. Oh, that's pretty, that is a pretty cool story. <laughs> so, uh, and does AI write briefs for people? Because I'd like to charge a bunch of money that I can just punch, put in AI and say, I need a brief and, and get it done by the computer. Somebody even said that before when we were talking about it. Oh, oh, like the New York lawyer that didn't check chat GPT citations. It completely fabricated citations in a uh, in a brief that it wrote. Just made up. Com- but it writes really well, Larry. And oddly, and I haven't played with this yet, but you could like take everything you've written, even from your boss or from you, and you could feed it in there and you could say, write in this style, and it would write like it was you it's really phenomenal what they're able to do these days in the and it's only a year old i can't imagine what it's going to look like in five years can't even imagine so well uh i generally poo poo every pro se litigant and, and but in my uh years of doing this i've seen two or three i've seen a handful of people who are really quite good at what they write and how they th- think and analyze and he was one of them uh, 
one one in Maryland wrote a, a petition for declaratory judgment on the registry, and the federal he filed a federal cause of action, and the federal judge liked it so much he uh, he asked the former chief public defender of the state to take the case for the guy, and she consolidated it in, into the work that she was already doing challenging the registry. But but occasionally somebody, even though they're not an attorney, they can actually do some pretty amazing stuff. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So. Anything else well, before we kick out of here, Larry? I think we've covered it. Fantastic. Chance, any, any, any parting words? Uh, just thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. So there. All right. All right. <laughs> well, make sure that you head over to registrymatters.co for uh, episode listings, and then you can head over to FYP Education for show notes. Leave voicemail at 747-227-4477 and email at registrymatterscast at gmail.com. And of course, support us over at patreon.com for just as little as a dollar a month. And that is incredibly appreciated and uh, helps, uh, helps keep the lights on, I suppose you could say. And as a patron, you could get on the Discord server and listen to us record live, which happens at about 7 p.m. Eastern on Saturday nights. And without anything else, I think that we can call this uh, a, a good episode and we will uh, get out of here and I hope everybody has a great rest of their weekend and I'll talk to you gentlemen soon. Have a great night. Thank you. You too. Good night. You've been listening to FYP.